Welcome to the podcast for the March issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here, and this month I'm joined once again by John McConnell to discuss some of the highlights from the issue. John, let's start with a research article. This is a trial, actually, from Kenya and South Africa concerning triple combination therapy, antiretroviral therapy for pregnant women. Now, clearly, pregnancy, breastfeeding, childbirth is an and HIV is a, is a really big issue, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so really, what's the, what's the point of this article? This is the so-called uh, Keisha Bora study. So it's, it's prophylaxis against mother-to-child transmission of HIV. It's, it's actually took place in five centers in Africa. So there's, um, as well as Kenya and South Africa, there's uh, Burkina Faso as well. What the researchers have done is a randomized trial. They've compared a triple antiretroviral combination given during pregnancy and breastfeeding with zidovudine and a single-dose levirapine. And this obviously is to prevent transmission of the HIV virus from mother to child. Let's see what are their endpoints. So there's HIV survival at um, six weeks and at 12 months is, is what they were looking for. Just briefly summarise the, the methods, if you would, and the key results. Pretty straightforward. I mean, randomised into two groups. Uh, one, one group received the um, triple combination therapy during pregnancy and up to about six and a half months of breastfeeding. The other group received uh, just, just the zidovudine and uh, a single dose nivirapine given around the time of, uh, of birth. Essentially, the HIV-free survival was better at both six weeks, uh, significantly better at both six weeks and 12, 12 months in the group that received the uh, the, the triple therapy. The result that the uh, essentially the investigators uh, hoped for. So what does this result mean, John? The implications really for, for policy particularly? This is as, as clear a, um, a clear support as you could get for WHO's guidelines on uh, antiretroviral uh, prophylaxis. Their guidelines that is that are that all HIV positive women should get antiretroviral prophylaxis during the time that they're pregnant and, and during breastfeeding uh, up to six months. The regimen which is now the favoured regimen, the triple one is, is going to be slightly more complicated. The one that was given support, uh, that was supported before, the zidovudine and nevirapine. So there are going to be issues around sustaining the uh, the cost of the uh, of the more uh, complex regimen. But good news, a, a clear result, which is the main thing. A, a clear result and, and good news, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, moving on, John, I, I fear that I'm going to get a bit confused, or maybe even you might get a bit confused, because in this month's issue, there's a, if there is a theme, it certainly is guidelines, the relevance of guidelines for uh, important infectious diseases, particularly in a healthcare setting. Should we start off, first of all, by talking about severe pneumonia? Because there is a study, isn't there, which is basically testing existing guidelines for uh, how you deal with severe pneumonia. Is that right? That's right, Richard. What the investigators of this study in the United States in four academic medical centres in the United States have done is that they have looked at the implementation of guidelines related to the management of uh, pneumonia in healthcare settings. There have been some guidelines issued a few years ago by the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Diseases Society of America. So as, as, as big a players in this field as you could possibly get. Uh, and they relate to how you treat uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, pneumonias in the settings of... Sorry, there's ventilator-associated pneumonia... 
there's what they call healthcare associated pneumonia and there's hospital acquired pneumonia so various forms of, of nosocomial pneumonia just to give you a sort of outline of how they went about how the investigators went about this this isn't a randomized trial what they did is that they educated the uh, doctors in their hospitals about these guidelines uh, and then they observed what actually happened and so what they've done is they've essentially divided up the patients between those who received guideline compliant uh, management and those who receive guideline non-compliant management and there is a rather surprising result which is that the patients who received guideline compliant management were more likely to die at 28 days than in the uh, the non-compliant group quite an extraordinary result John I mean it's so bizarre isn't it to even have a study to actually test guidelines surely the guideline there should have been tests before the guidelines were produced well I think that is the issue about uh, which our commentator and a personal view paper on a related subject actually look at is that the information to guide the formulation of the guidelines wasn't that strong what the authors have found here obviously is somewhat counterintuitive result and there is efforts to to explain it now for example one of the commentators suggests that uh, perhaps the uh, patients who were sicker were the ones more likely to receive uh, guideline uh, compliant management and therefore because they were sicker they were they were more likely to die that that is one possibility what the guidelines do is they mandate the empirical use of a combination of antibiotics now it's possible that that somehow that that uh, that might have been an, an excessive use of antibiotics and of course any drugs have a risk of toxicity with their with them so perhaps there was some sort of uh, effect of the uh, the toxic use of the, the, these antibiotics was somehow uh, more toxic than the uh, the non-compliant group who received perhaps received fewer drugs we just don't know this is all speculation so what the authors have here is a surprising result and a lack of explanation so i think the the real bottom line here is that they are actually calling for these guidelines not to be implemented any further at this stage and they're saying that what we really need and i, I think this is quite sensible but it may be difficult to do. What we really need is a randomised trial of the implementation of the guidelines, but before we go any further. Gosh, yeah, interesting and uh, quite controversial, I would have thought, to this, this type of result. I, I, I expect letters. <laughs> so, John, on a, on a very similar theme, there's a review looking at staph, Staphylococcus aureus. Tell us about that and, and how similar it is to the issue. We've well, a, a very substantial review looking at clinical management of Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, of which there are around 12,500 cases in the UK alone associated with a mortality of around 30%. I think one of the messages here, uh, similar to what we've just been discussing about guidelines, is that the evidence on which to base good practice for the management of Staph aureus bacteremia uh, is just not that good. Uh, and so uh, over a review of around 12 pages, the sort of substantial recommendations that the authors come to are, are not that great because the, the evidence that we have is just not that good. They do provide some very useful clinical guidance but what they also do is that they formulate um, 10 essential research questions that, that need to be answered so there is um, there is plenty of work still to be done as you'd say we have also picked up this topic for an editorial but um, 
A slightly related subject, the review deals with both uh, methicillin-resistant and sensitive bacteremia. Our editorial is looking at some new MRSA guidelines which have come out in the United States uh, and doing a little bit of a compare and contrast with the existing uh, UK guidelines. If you want a bottom line for this editorial is, is again, these guidelines, they're very useful based in places on quite flimsy evidence that uh, the medical community as as a whole is, is doing its best to provide the best possible evidence-based treatment. But once again, the evidence is not that strong in certain areas. Thanks very much, John. I mean, it's very much, you said, it's an interesting and controversial topic. It's going to cause ripples, isn't it? So it will run and run. Run and run. And as you said, no easy answers. That's the, that's the amazing thing. M- must be incredibly skillful clinicians involved in this. But yet what they're doing doesn't seem to be you know, adding up. What they're doing is based on, an awful lot on their own personal experience and the experience they share with their colleagues. Uh, not a lot of it is based on randomized trials use involving substantial numbers of people, so which is the, the, the strongest form of evidence. So it's back to evidence-based policy, based on evidence-based research. Uh, we, I wish we could. Uh, I wish we had more good evidence on which on which to base practice, but, and, that, and that research certainly needs to be done. I think on that <laughs> slightly depressing note, I think we better stop. Many thanks indeed for listening. Those are some of the highlights from the March issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. We'll be back next month.